All right, folks, you are listening to the Ishai Fleischer Show here on thelandofisrael.com, broadcasting live from Jerusalem to the world, and you're a part of it wherever you are. And it is a beautiful, rainy day here in the land of Israel. That's right. We don't say uh, a dreary weather or bad weather or all those uh, silly, uh, incorrect descriptions of God's great blessings. Certainly here in the land of Israel, when it's a rainy day, there's nothing more beautiful. And personally, if it's winter time, I like it to be rainy. You know, I don't want no sunny days in winter. I want cold and rainy days. That's exactly what it is. And you can just see and feel that the grape vines and the olive trees are just happy in places like I used to live in Beit El. You just know that they love this kind of weather. They need the cold. They need the rocks. They need the the, the challenges and the toughness. It makes them stronger. That's the Jewish people as well. And indeed, it has been a tough week with uh, attacks uh, on Jews, including the murder of Daphna Meir, uh, a mother of four and a, uh, a adopter of two more, an incredible lady that was murdered uh, right in front of her daughter in cold blood, stabbed. Uh, the knife uh, was lodged in her, and she refused to give it back to the terrorist who wanted to do more crimes against her family. She kind of kept that knife. She took it for the team, literally, uh, and refused to, to give it up, and uh, the terrorist fled and was subsequently captured. Uh, tough things happen here in the land of Israel, but I guess what I was trying to say is like the olive uh, trees and the grapevines, uh, tough situations, adversity makes us stronger. I'm here with Rabbi Mike Foyer because it's time for a spiritual cafe. Rabbi Mike, thank you so much for hosting us here at Beit Midrash Sulam Yaakov in beautiful Nachlaot, Yerushalayim. You are always welcome. I was here um, um, uh, yesterday, the day before yesterday, uh, nearby at the funeral of Daphna Meir, um, and I, I felt that I had to go. I felt that I needed to get closure and to kind of uh, take her to her final resting place along with uh, thousands of, of others who came uh, to mark the occasion to, to, to honor her on her last journey. Um, and then I thought to myself this, this thought. It, it seems that some of the people that are being murdered are really the finest people in Am Yisrael, the finest. Here was a nurse, uh, a, a, a kala teacher, a, 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 a teacher of would-be brides, um, a person who helped many people give birth, just like a just like a good, good, super good person, and every story about her was just amazing. Um, and I thought to myself, in lieu of the temple and in lieu of sacrifices, God is taking uh, his sacrifices. The Jewish people are giving up the sacrifices, but it's only coming from the very best, the very best choice. Uh, animals, the choice people in this case, the choice righteous people uh, are being offered up uh, in, in this process. That is no excuse for inaction or no, uh, no excuse for the terrorism. Uh, but the people that, are, that, have been, that have been going up to heaven uh, are, are the holy ones of Am Yisrael. I'm not really sure what to say about that other than the, the hope that after death and mourning comes nechama, comes, how would you translate nechama? Consolation. Consolation or, or, you know, comfort. And it's actually one of the introductions to our parsha, um, to a certain degree, contradicts that translation, right? At the beginning of the parsha, for various reasons, God says, so to speak, that he doesn't want to take Am Yisrael through the land of the Plishtim, the land of the Philistines when they leave Egypt, right? Pen yinahem ha'am, birotam milchama, 
right? Lest the people see war and regret what they've done by leaving and, and go back to Mitzrayim. So the question is that word, yinahem, uh, how could it mean both console or comfort, we say to a mourner, right? Let the, let the presence of God really comfort you. And how could it mean that and regret at the same time? Um, and and I, I think it's, it's a profound call for how we respond for something like the death of the righteous and uh, we, the individual tragedies or the national tragedy, which to me is so present every time this trauma reemerges. I think about the fact that we have not had the seven days of peace that our tradition dictates as the response to tragedy. Think about it. Since the second temple was destroyed, do you think there have been seven continuous days in which the Jewish people have been able to sit and basically to lick our wounds, to, to reflect on what we've lost, and to begin to um, find some comfort? I actually don't think there have been in 2,000 years. We are um, at the Torah portion of Beshalach. Beshalach is, uh, I guess, the third Torah portion in, uh, in is the third is it the third already? Or is it, uh, have we got more? It's uh, Shmot Vaera Bo Beshalach. Yeah, we're in fourth. The fourth, that's right, the fourth Torah portion. And um, it's, it's the book of Exodus, about chapter 15. And uh, this is the Exodus. The Exodus is happening in this week's Torah portion. So if last week was all about preparing for the Exodus, the literal Exodus is happening right now. The Jewish people are uh, leaving. We're going to deal with incredible things uh, like the splitting of the Red Sea, this most... Uh, um, uh, how should we say, cin- cinematographic moment, uh, uh, you know, uh, seen by millions um, uh, through various interpretations of it. Uh, this uh, incredibly visual moment is going to take place, and the Song of the Sea. It's all happening in this week's Torah portion, and it's one of these Torah portions which is, I would say, like, overfull. It was, it's one of those, um, you know, those overstuffed sandwiches, right? Where it's, like, delicious, but full of stuff. And, and what's going to happen here is that we're going to go through various... Um, just like just like birth, it's kind of like overstuffed. There's too many things going on here. There's like an unbelievable amount of things that you have to take care of and think about it at this incredible moment. And, and the first thing that we're going to think about is that is that as the Jewish people finally get permission, get the visas to Exodus from the USSR, as they're finally getting permission to leave uh, from Egypt, uh, everything's okay. You know, we've got had the 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 ten uh, makot um, uh, the Ten plagues. The plagues. Um, now it's time for the Jewish people to leave. The, the Egyptians are giving them their wealth, and everything is going to be honky-dory, but then suddenly there's a turn in the position of the Egyptians. Uh, suddenly they're full of regret. Why should we let the slaves go? It's not right. We did it under duress, and now we've got to chase them down and kill them or return them to, to, to slavery, to enslavement. Uh, and and basically, what whatever whatever goodwill there was now is is being overturned. This this reminds me of the current situation that we're in. You know, in, in the twenties, the world recognized uh, that the Jewish people deserved their their homeland back all the way through the sixties, right? And 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 got together. Well, one could argue, you know, that already the UN started uh, undermining and eating away at our sovereignty. Uh, with uh, you know the, uh, the the partition plan and, and those resolutions, but in any case, the, the point is, is in the twenties they certainly recognized it. Today, the world does not recognize the legitimacy of a Jewish state, and and do everything to undermine it, um, to to the point of of absurdity, to the point of of total um, uh, what's it called when somebody's completely 
th- only thinking about you. Obsession. 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 They're completely obsessed with the idea of trying to undermine the, the legitimacy and sovereignty of the Jewish state. So that, that's something that we learned from the Torah portion. It's like they came to one conclusion, but then the minute it actually was born, they wanted to destroy it. This is the theme that I identified, which really is the frame in many ways for our whole Parsha, which is that, that word nachem, which means both console and regret, those are two opposites. And the answer is, well, it actually means neither. What it means is to change your perspective on something after it's happened. Right? In the same way, how can a mourner ever be comforted? The answer is that once you absorb the tragedy and you decide that you're committed to life, you by, by nature need to reframe that tragedy into a source of life. How about when I think I want to do something? I'm the Egyptians. Yeah, let the Jews go. That's a good idea. Once they actually leave, I look at what's happened. I say, wait a minute. That's not what I think anymore at all. The event has happened already, and I changed my perspective on it. That is exactly what that word means. And so the Egyptians perhaps thought that it was worth it to let Am Yisrael go. And then once it happens, they regret. The world perhaps thought, oh, we want the Jews to have a home. Now that it exists, there's a very different perspective when the reality is in their faces. So, you know, this week I was dealing with some some more German uh, journalists it's always tough for me to deal with the Germans for various reasons, including the fact that they doubt, and I work, of course, in the Jewish community of Hebron and Hebron, where the forefathers and mothers are buried, and they, they doubt the veracity of our claim, and they doubt our, the veracity of our right to, to the essential homeland, and it's very frustrating to me because I think to myself, boy, you're just continuing the ways of your forefathers trying to exterminate us by trying to exterminate our story in this case. But then, on the other hand, I just I get this inner chuckle when I saw uh, the Prime Minister of Israel coming out of a German submarine now owned by Israel, just to think that Jews are going to be piloting, sailing um, a German U-boat. <laughs> it's just, the, the irony of it all is just improbable and, and, and really hilarious to me. And I guess the, there's an ambivalence even in Germany. About about what Israel's supposed to be. Give yeah, give them the submarines on the one hand. On the other hand, uh, try to take away their Chevron. There's another piece of that phenomenon which you may not be familiar with because I have a teacher who works in a conversion program here in Jerusalem. And he told me, unbeknownst to many people, there's a steady stream of young Germans who come through that program. Uh, many of whom perhaps had Jewish roots, but but many of them certainly did not. And he feels that there's a spiritual um, tikkun, a certain uh, fixing or a reparation if you will, that many of these people are seeking out that which their ancestors attempted to destroy. Well, the end of the Torah portion, B'Shalach, that we're talking about, has a whole section about Amalekites, the Amalekite attack on the Jews. And it was an unprovoked attack. The Amalekites weren't going to gain anything from it. They had nothing in this fight. The Jews weren't taking anything away from them. But on a deeper spiritual level, the Amalekites were very concerned that the Jewish people were going to come to the land of Israel, receive the Torah, and then come to the land of Israel, which would be their undoing on a spiritual sense because they are the uh, embodiment of chaos, of uh, disbelief, of cynicism. And they see the Jews approaching to receive the Torah in the land of Israel, and they go out to fight with them. Kind of, uh, again, uh, nobody was starting up with them. Uh, but they but they felt the need to to attack Israel and to cool off the heat, uh, the energy, the excitement of the Jewish people coming to the land of Israel. And indeed, uh, the Torah tells us that God has got to fight with um, with Amalek in every generation, and that the hand of Amalek 
according to some uh, interpretations, wants to flip over or overturn the seat of God in this world. Uh, at the same time, the Talmud tells us that that some of uh, Haman's, who is the uh, super Amalekite embodiment, some of his uh, uh, descendants are going to be great Jews studying Torah in Bnei Brak. It's absolute because there's really two sides. Did you, did you hear the slight uh, r- uh, relationship between that and the Germans? Yeah, I heard it. And the, okay, no, yeah. I understand. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, and because there's 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 two sides to the doubt which Amalek builds themselves upon, right? And and this is part of my mission as an educator because we have to be very wary how we respond to doubt. Um, it is true that it is important to have a sense of certainty in one's belief. And so much of this partial that I want to get to is about how it was at the parting of the Red Sea that, that uh, Am Yisrael finally believed, you know, had, had a munah in, in God. At the same time, don't fall into the trap of the modern world of thinking that what religion offers is certainty because certainty is the opposite of doubt, right? Because the reality is certainty is not the opposite of doubt. The opposite of doubt is wonder, right? And, and it's the difference between saying, Amalek says to you, you don't know. And you know what the response to that is? I don't know. Because if we have to retreat into certainty in order to combat Amalek, we will always shrink the world to our capacity to understand. Well, I, I Wait, would... let me finish. I want to okay, explain what I'm yeah, saying. Sure, sure. Because we as Jews have to remember, and the, and the splitting of the Red Sea comes to teach us that God's capacity is greater than we can imagine. Mm-hmm. And if we retreat into certainty in the, in the intellectual sense, then we shrink God to our capacity. We need to be certain in our path. We need to be certain in our history. Mm-hmm. But we need to live with a sense of wonder that what is possible is beyond our grasp. Right. And that's that wonder with which we say, you're right, I don't know. Right, but, but the added component that you didn't say as a word is faith. I mean, you yes. say, I don't know, but I know that I trust in him. I was always taught that emunah, faith is is the obligation to use your intellect right up until it's no longer the adequate tool. Right. And so therefore it is built upon the capacity to be certain and that last act of certainty is the acceptance that actually I can't grasp the whole. All right folks, you are listening to the Ishai Fleischer show. We are at Spiritual Cafe here in Beit Midrash Sulam Yaakov. A beautiful gray and rainy day out there. Cold, I'm wearing uh, like uh, second pants, like ballet type, uh, like silky pants that keep me warm. That was uh, too much information. Yeah, no, I just love these things because like I'm just not like, a fa- I always see people who are cold in the cold and I feel bad for them. I say, you don't have to be cold in the cold. You could be dressed properly. If you dress properly, you're going to enjoy this cold. There's, it's a, there's wonderfulness in this weather, but it's not cold if you're dressed properly. I'm sure that that fits into our Torah portion. In any case... Um, uh, speaking of oh well, speaking of the show, I want to thank Jack, uh, who who helps make this show happen in honor uh, of his wife Lillian and his sister Sarah, and uh, the good folks out there like uh, my friend Moshe out in uh, Brooklyn as well, who's also hanging out in Florida, our good friends out there all over the world uh, that make the show possible. Also, my good friend Donnie Kay, who lives around here close by who makes this show possible, and thelandofisrael.com, which is this uh, amazing new broadcast network. We're going to be broadcasting more and more, and the Ishai Fleischer Show is proud to be um, part of the family of thelandofisrael.com, which is kind of the next generation of, uh, uh, you know, uh, Israel National Radio at Arut Sheva, later on uh, Voice of Israel, and now thelandofisrael.com. Very proud to be part of that. And Rabbi Mike Ford joins us. Rabbi Mike, you started talking about the um, splitting of the Red Sea. 
Um, Ultimate Revelation. Uh, Ultimate Revelation is, I, I just would, that's what I would say. <laughs> Those were the words. Um, and so much so that, that every uh, Jew who was walking uh, through this split Red Sea just had visions and, and saw, um, saw kind of the full gamut of godliness as much as God can reveal himself to, to mankind of this world. Um, and, and we come out the other side, uh, the Egyptians are swallowed. This sea is, is magical in that it's, it's not natural in the way it's split. It also swallows our enemies, spits them out, churns them, spits them out, and the Jews on the other side are so wowed uh, by this revelation that they sing a song. This song is, is part of our daily liturgy, uh, the Az Yashir, the, the song on the sea. And the song of the sea uh, goes through God's uh, defeat of, of the enemies of Israel and the final promise that there will be a holy temple in, in a holy land that's already been prepared. It's been set out. It's, it's the end of history uh, is in this moment of beginning of history of the splitting the Red Sea and the Jewish nation being born. And to me, the critical transition, right, that changing of perspective, like we were referring to, happens when they see Egypt dead at, at the sea, when they reach the other side, right? In, in, uh, in the Parsha, it says, Yisrael et right? They saw, Israel saw the great hand which God had done to the Egyptians. And uh, they feared God, they believed in God and in his servant Moshe. So the question I always have is, why now? I mean, granted, splitting the Red Sea is very impressive, but I don't know, the firstborn, the pillar of fire and cloud they've been following. I mean, what was unique Well, there was no redemption in those, in, those, uh, in those plagues. Those were strikes against the enemy, but the, but the true redemption as a nation being born comes at the, at the splitting of the Red Sea. I want to push it one step further because I didn't read the previous verse, which, is, says, which says that Israel saw Egypt dead on the edge of the sea. And, and I think there's a critical teaching in this is that as long as what was happening in the process of redemption was just simply striking our enemies and letting us loose that, that story of liberation, it had not yet paved the way for freedom. Because, you know, there's a tremendous problem in being a slave. Is you know what the average slave's image of freedom is? How does a slave imagine freedom? In what image? I don't know. The master. Right? One of the great tragedies of slavery, and we've seen this through world history, is that a slave's world is so narrow that when they imagine freedom, they, of course, picture their master, which is why politically... Uh-huh. We see so often when oppressed peoples have thrown off their oppressors, they so often create a society which turns around and oppresses others. I think that's uh, partially true here in Israel where, where full liberation is not... We're going to get there. That's exactly where I'm headed. <laughs> we, we, we put ourselves back. If, if we don't have the galut to, to the exile to kind of deal with, we, we, will, we will bring upon ourselves an exile in order to kind of understand our reality around us. And, and also seek out someone over which to exercise power in many ways, mm-hmm. right? And by the way, on the personal level, this is the great tragedy. In another part of my life, I worked with many abused children. And um, every child psychologist will tell you that a, an abused child is far more likely to grow up into an abuser. And it, at first glance, that's absurd. Like you would think, who is less likely to do such an awful thing in the world than someone who has been subject to that experience. But the answer is very simple. is that the image of what it is to be powerful and free in that poor child's mind often becomes the abuser. 
So what's the greatness of this moment is God says, listen, you see Egypt, you see your inner master that you, unbeknownst to yourself, you want to imitate. There they are. They're gone. They're dead. And now what are you going to do? You're going to head out into the wilderness where there's nothing and I'll show you what freedom is. I'll give you the Torah. Because now you can actually choose to be a new people. And it's not for naught that the Torah then has almost a backbeat. Right? Remember you were slaves in Egypt. Remember you were slaves in Egypt. Why? Not just because you want to be empathetic, which is important, and understand what freedom really is, but, but don't ever think that you'll be free by becoming the Egyptians. And I think that this is such a great struggle for us right now, is that we have not yet summoned up the imagination in this country of what a redeemed people really looks like. Right? We know what it means to exercise power, and we know what it means to be the subject of others who exercise power. And I'm not, by the way, blaming the victim or, or playing that game, but, but we as a people have so much power right now, and what we lack is um, the imagination to be free. Yeah, it's scary to be free because um, I actually, I, I'm, I'm not sure I totally agree with, with your formulation because in my mind it's, it's actually, I find that Jews are actually afraid to be uh, the masters. Uh, they, they actually are afraid to to assert rule. I don't think they've, I don't I don't think they've gone to the point where they even want to be the Egyptians. They they just, they we just continue to want to be slaves. And we actually see those literal phrases in the Torah portion where they're like, you know, hey, uh, you know, uh, let's go back to Egypt and and be slaves. Let's, pl-. you know, I th- I always thought the Matrix the movie had a, had perfect uh, uh, parables for this. We need to say, plug me back in. I, I want I want the simple life. I want the the non life filled with choices. Give me the 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 more kind of simplistic slave life. I understand it. Uh, plug me back into the matrix, and and I'll be satisfied. Take away the responsibility of right. freedom. Right. Listen, I, I, it's not an absolute story. The Responsibility of Freedom. That sounds like a good book name. Yeah. Yeah. Responsibility uh, well, and of Freedom. It's yeah. not an absolute story, nor is it necessarily conscious. You're absolutely right. There's two sides to our soul which are struggling right now here. It's absolutely a deep-seated um, abhorrence of, of ruling over others, of exercising power. And, and there is also a tremendous fear which causes us to want to exercise power. You know, that's a, in many ways, it's, it's another expl- explanation of your of Woody Norris syndrome. Woody Norris disease, that's right. Right, you know, and um, the, the confusion is is right because, of course, we've already received the Torah. We've already gone through this. We have a capacity to be free, but we haven't yet figured out how to build our society around it. Uh, yeah, Jews, Jews, uh, Jews oftentimes seems to me that they've not learned the lesson of the Holocaust. I hear a lot of Jews... What's the lesson of the Holocaust? Well, the lesson of the Holocaust is not um, we were subjugated and therefore we should never do that to other people. That's not my lesson in any case. Is that a lesson? Uh, it, it's not really for the Jews because we were subjugators in the first place, so there wasn't a big lesson for us. I, th- I think the big lesson is never let bad people do that again. Never let bad people get empowered. Smash and dest- destroy the bad people, the, the jihadists or... The, wherever they are? The Nazis. I, I don't know about wherever they are, but certainly do not... The, the never again, That's that would be a nice dream to be like a force of like the Superman of good all over the world. But minimally, don't let Nazis rise up against you. And I find that, that Jews oftentimes say to me, well, we can't rule another people. We know what ruling another people is. And, and they, they completely disregard the idea of a benevolent kingdom. Uh, they completely disregard the, I think, the real lesson of the Holocaust, which is do not let uh, a Nazi-like power rise up against you again. 
uh, and I find that, that Jews cannot swallow that or you know the, the time that we live in and I think the milieu and it could also be the countries that we come from Russian Jews I find are more likely to understand that we should not empower or should not allow the empowerment of, of haters and we should control them it's it's a it's a it's part of a national psyche in America ruling over another people and all that is completely you know anathema it doesn't make any sense any case um, the Jewish people are grappling with these issues that we're grappling with right now which which is which is freedom and the byproduct of that grappling is uh, there's a, there's a you know the the how did you call it so the wonderment and then the uh, and the intellectual struggle and and the uh, uh, kind of moving towards freedom but there is a negative byproduct and that negative byproduct is complaining and this Torah portion we meet the complainy Jew and he is he and she are complaining and complaining they are constantly filled with a kind of bitter and there's all these you know bitter little lines little jabs why did god take us out here why should we all die through thirst there's no food here you got to take care of us it's whiny it's 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 small minded and and you could hear the and eventually it's going to blow up in their face stop complaining uh, you know uh, you are you are um, you are really you are really calling out God, the Creator of the universe. In the long run, it's what will prevent us from going into the land, right? And because that very complaining is a way of avoiding the responsibility of freedom, because as you said, we're, we're looking for someone else to solve our problems, right? Whether it's Moshe, whether it's God, whether it's some other leader, let's make a, a new leader. He'll take us back to Egypt. It'll be fine. And I see it in my own life. Like when I'm complaining, really, what I'm doing is avoiding the necessity of. I see what the problem is. I know what my capacities are. Now buck up and do something. Right? right? And, and it, it, to this very day, I think that, that um, Western societies are, are plagued by this. This sort of like whiny complaining, how come everything can't just be easy? Right? Like, you know, they say today that, that um, today's generation, right, is, is so sensitive, which in many ways is a good thing, but so sensitive to the nature of language and how people speak to them, you know, whereas our grandparents' generation, right, uh, you know, fought and died on the beaches of, of Normandy, right? That the, the ability to accept the realities of the world and instead of complaining in the face of them, attempt to change them uh, is a very important We're pillar called. of freedom. Would, we're, we're coddled people. Yeah, and, 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 and um, just in the same way that Jefferson said that the, the tree of liberty needs to be watered with the blood of tyrants, right? So, too, um, the, uh, the, the fruit of freedom grow out of a taking of responsibility and, and a letting go of the desire to complain, which is just a shifting of responsibility to somebody else. So, the complaining, uh, uh, there's, there's two kinds of complaining. There's also the complaining of a baby, right? And the baby complains, he cries, mm-hmm. and you don't reason with him and say, hey, you know, you've got everything. You don't have to worry. Your parents are going to take care of you. Baby cries. That's his way, his or her way of communicating. Uh, I know that because my baby kept me up last night. Um, and uh, you just can't get angry at the baby because, uh, you know, they're not reasonable yet. And maybe that's also the way the, that God deals with the Jews, at least at this part of the Torah, this part of the Bible, the um, fourth Torah portion of the book of Exodus. Uh, we're fresh out of Egypt. We're freshly uh, made free men and women from the slavery of Egypt. And God says, he's, he's, he's still being soft with us, kid gloves. And he says, uh, don't worry. I got a little gift here for you. It's going to satiate you uh, throughout the desert. And that is called the manna. The manna. This... Uh, <laughs> Mana comes from the word, the Bible tells us from the word man, which is like 
Well, what is it? Well, I don't even know what it is. What is this stuff? It's some kind of, and even the Torah gives us gives us some 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 not so clear uh, 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 descriptions of what this thing is. Is it like a, some kind of like a like a like a layer of of dew with little white pieces? Uh, you gather it, you make it into a pie. Does it have a taste? It tastes like some kind of uh, uh, honey uh, croissant type thing. Um, or does it taste like anything you want it to taste? And, and it's you know it, it kind of comes to you exactly how much you need. If you try to hoard it, it'll it'll just turn bad. It'll rot on you. You try to pick it up on the Sabbath, it's it's bad for you. It it it's, it doesn't even appear in the Sabbath. It comes Friday. You know there's a double delivery. FedEx is is overworked on Fridays with the mana, and and it's this gift. And not only that, God says I want you to take some of this mana, put it in a jar, and show it to the generations because this is how I fed. The, the people of Israel in the desert. And on top of that, the mana uh, Torah portion is one which is considered a segula, a, a, uh, a, a kind of blessed activity to read it, uh, to read the Torah portion of the mana, to learn its lessons, and it's a kind of um, a blessing for welfare, for, for, for welfare for the Jewish people, I guess for anybody. So a lot is, is in this story of, of the mana, which is an answer to the quibbling and the the, uh, the 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 complaining of the Jews in the desert. I mean, in many ways, it fits very nicely into your statement that you don't criticize a baby for complaining, because the mana, so much of it is mother's milk, right? especially that image that it tastes like whatever you imagine, right? Um, and, and and furthermore, this notion that the lesson of the mana is that of total dependence, right? You get what you need for today, and you just have to have faith that it'll be there tomorrow. Day by day, yom yom. It That's comes right. It comes. It never comes in as a as a, as a big uh, windfall. No, as you said, if you try to gather power, more than today's powerful. portion, it just simply right. rots. Right. Right. And 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 that stage, that childlike stage, I feel like connects very nicely to what you said about Amalek as well, because you know what the statement of the people is that triggers the appearance of Amalek. You remember the line? It says, "Hayesh Hashem b'kibenu." Right? Is God in our midst or not? What kind of question is that for people who are following a pillar of fire? They just went through the Red Sea, 10 plagues. Like, wh- what kind of question is that? Right. It's, I'll tell you exactly what kind of question it is. It's a question of a baby who doesn't have what we call object permanence. Right? That's why peekaboo is fun. Right? If I start covering my face and popping it out, you just think I'm strange. But, but, but your baby will smile and laugh. Why? Because when my face disappears, I don't exist. Right? And that's that stage that Am Yisrael is at at this moment. As soon as God is not holding our hand, as soon as he's actually not present in our behavior, he's gone. We say, well, is God here or not? And the answer to that is the coming of Amalek, which is saying, no, people, you need to grow up. We're on our way to get the Torah, which is going to be a permanent connection to God, which is not going to be dependent upon his sort of uh, Charlton Heston, Cecil B. DeMille, dramatic, you know, like you said, cinematographic presentation of the sea. That's an important birth moment, right? But in the long run, you're going to grow up. You're going to stand on your own two feet, and you're just going to know. You're going to know God, right? And and um, the mana is is that critical relation. That's why I believe it, it is the sakula. It is that special uh, property for bringing sustenance and, and, and daily prosperity because it's a training in believing that everything we have comes from God. And I think that that nicely ties up uh, what we started with, which is the murder of Daphne Meir, uh, that those are moments where uh, God's, um, 
God's providence and protection seem to disappear, and you just can lose faith. I have spoken with good people, good people, uh, people of faith who who get get um, rattled and, and shaken by by, by these uh, horrific occurrences, the, these uh, acts of these heinous acts of murder, um, and it's exactly at this time. It's exactly at this moment where there's uh, a lack of object permanence, as you say, uh, a lack of where you could see God clearly, that we have to have faith, faith in the long road, faith in God's ultimate justice, uh, faith that he will avenge uh, the, the blood of his servants, uh, faith that it's all for the good, all for the right, that he will protect also uh, the newly created orphans uh, and widows and widowers, that he will, that we, he will sustain them and give them life. Um, it's it's to have faith exactly at these moments. That is the test uh, of the darkness, and don't let the momentary darkness blind you from the incredible light of, of revelation that we're living in. We're living in a in a time of the splitting of the Red Sea. We're living in a time where the Jewish people are being reborn, coming out of our graves of two thousand years of exile, and being reborn here in this land. Rabbi Mike Foyer, I want to thank you so much for another beautiful. Spiritual Cafe here in Beit Midrash, Sulam Yaakov. Well, thanks for joining us here. All right, folks. Enjoy the Torah portion, Parshat B'Shalach. Write me an email, yishai at thelandofisrael.com, yishai at thelandofisrael.com. Follow me on Twitter. I'd love you to uh, tweet at me uh, and Facebook as well. In any case, stay connected to myself, uh, to Rabbi Mike. Write him an email. Write me, and I'll, I'll forward it to him immediately, of course. Uh, check out uh, the podcast's of Beit Midrash Sulam Yaakov. That's found at? SulamYaakov.com. SulamYaakov.com. Just that simple. Uh, and uh, the dot .com can, can, can be a place where you go on the, uh, on the internet or you can just come on over. You can C-O-M-E. Come on over to uh, Jerusalem where Beit Midrash Sulam Yaakov is always waiting for you with embraced arms to learn the beautiful Torah and godly secrets uh, and myself as well. Uh, ready to continue to broadcast to you from wherever you are to connect you to the story of Israel. Stay tuned, stay strong, and stay connected. And shalom.